Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and some people who just have fascinating stories. Today, we talk with Dr. Janice Marie Collins, author, journalist, documentarian, educator, and humanitarian. We discuss education, race, and journalism. She highlights her latest book, Teaching Without Borders, Creating Equity and Inclusion with Active Centralized Empowerment. She's a strong advocate for inclusion, giving students power in the classroom and giving every student a fair chance without demonizing them. Dr. Collins, your your most recent book is a very interesting one. It's called Teaching Without Borders, and the subtitle's Creating Equity and Inclusion with Active Centralized Empowerment. Now, that's a long title for people to digest. Could Could you summarize what this book is about and who might be interested in reading it? Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'd love to do that. Um, Well, Teaching Without Borders is exactly what it sounds like, first of all, is that you're teaching um, a full inclusion, a way of, of including everyone. And a lot of people would say, how is that even possible? Well, if you do the research, most of bu- most of the books that are dealing with diversity, equity, and inclusion, they have binaries, right? And so we have um, black, white, um, LGBT, not LGBT, um, physically special, not so physically special, where you could do everything without a wheelchair. It's a lot of different divisions here. And what I wanted to develop, which I did over the past 16 years, this book has 16 years of research and testing. I wanted to ve- develop a critical pedagogy that would make sure that anyone and everyone, including the professor, can be included in the environment in a positive way. And so when I talk about teaching without borders, that means we're getting rid of the walls, we're getting rid of the confinement, we're getting rid of um, everything that would hold a person back. Um, a lot of professors feel that um, when they, um, they're they teaching nowadays, some professors who've been around for a while, they feel that technology has left them, left them in the back and, and students know more. Well, how do you become inclusive with that and that type of environment? So when we create equity and inclusion, that means everyone has value. 
everyone's voice has value. Where you come from, whether it's um, you come from a socioeconomic level where there may have been some challenges versus maybe an economic privilege level where perhaps the challenges were there, but they were a little different. Well, both carry value. Uh, there's something special about every single experience. So it's using cross-cultural competency. It's using um, Dr. Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences. It's using intersectionality. It's using um, all of the aspects, even looking at uh, Rosenberg's self-esteem scale. Does it work? Well, in 16 years in trying it, and in 16 years in producing it in classes and with students, not only are the students more empowered, with their voice, with movement from the margins through self-agency, meaning I don't give them the freedom to move. I create a free space, and it's through their self-agency that they actually move themselves from the margins, which I think is much more empowering. Not only that, it shows that uh, not only does it increase their self-esteem, it sustains self-esteem. It increases confidence performance. And your content, whether it's a paper or a news product, like a newscast, not only is the classroom more inclusive and more diverse, the content itself that you're producing in the classroom is more diverse and more inclusive. Now, who wants to use it? Any and every professor, any and every teacher, from kindergarten all the way up through master's, that wants to be more inclusive in the classroom. In this book, you have methodologies and strategies that I've used and other teachers have used and other professors have used over 16 years to say, this is how you can, to show and say, this is how you can be more inclusive in your classroom. You, this is a beginning, but you can take it and make it your own. That's what's inclusive about this as well. So it's a teacher's um, faculty resource book um, for all grade levels. Um, I've even used it um, with internationally with professors across the border um, in other countries. And it's working very, very well. And it actually helps, I think, also in your teaching evaluations. Um, I think it could do very well when it helps teachers who really want to be inclusive and fair in their classroom and their teaching. And it's a great time to have it. What has been the response from uh, educators that have used this? What's oh, they feedback? absolutely love it. From STEM to STEAM to um, liberal arts, um, they have actually found empowerment and found that their classes are actually more inclusive, that they themselves are more inclusive in ways they didn't think that they needed to be or they weren't aware of. And so the evaluations have been great from the professors as well as the students. The students love this as type in type of environment that is positive and allows them to be their authentic self. So so break that down. Give us an example, if you could, Dr. Collins, of, of mm -hmm. how that manifests itself. Okay. Uh, give us an example of what that means. Sure. Okay, I'll give you two quick examples. Um, I've taught for over 20 years, and I have taught at HBCUs, and I've also taught at predominantly uh, white universities. And this critical pedagogy used by other professors and myself works quite well, um, no matter the demographics and the geographics. So one example is through all of that, um, there may be students in the classroom who are who have been through challenges financially in their families for generations. Now, instead of using that 
as a form or a way to marginalize a student, what you would use that and turn that into the cross-cultural competency that says, because you know how to stretch a dollar, you should be our treasure. That would be great if you could take that position and make sure we never run out of money because you're great at that. Now, you do that just by understanding the student themselves. You don't make a big deal out of it and say in front of everyone, oh, because your family comes from this, your family comes from that. They'll say it themselves. They will say it themselves. That's one way where you can take the economic aspect and make it important and make it part of the authenticity and make it something of value. Another way, let's take the other side of that. Women, for instance, let's say, let's talk about uh, journalism and mass communication. Still to this day, women make up about 62% or more of the graduate classes, um, graduating classes in journalism, mass communications across this nation. However, they do not hold top level senior positions in journalism. Okay. Um, so what's going on with that? Uh, I looked at that, and what we found was in an ACE, what I call an ACE classroom, when you're acing it, when you actively centralize an individual or a classroom, let's say the individual, on what's important and what's authentic, something they can't change, which is, for instance, if they define themselves as female, and you use that to centralize yourself, speak from your authenticity that empowers you to move forward. So what that means is in an ACE classroom, women will be given the opportunity, assigned the opportunity, and encouraged to take the opportunity to take leadership classes. I mean, leadership positions. Not only will they take leadership positions, they will take managerial positions. They will have the power to fire, to hire. They will have the power to negotiate, manage. I think when you and when you see males seeing women in strong roles like this, when you see women seeing themselves in strong roles like this, even though some of them are still terrified or concerned about coming across as masculine or too strong, we have to deal with that. It's okay. We don't, there's no demonizing. If that's how you really feel and you don't want to be seen this way or that way, you're allowed to say that out loud and we're together, you're allowed to address it. So is it really masculine for you to have power? Seriously? And it's done in a way that is inclusive and it doesn't, it doesn't push the student away or make the student feel ashamed. It's who they are. So let's talk about it. Um, what you see with that is you see them actually comprehending and processing, how am I going to do this? How should I do, th do this the next time I'm in the ACE classroom or I'm in Professor Collins's classroom? Because I'm going to have to step up and be a transformational leader because she's going to grade on that, on my leadership decisions, on my leadership management. So I cannot allow being a female to get into the way, in the way. And I cannot allow being male, allowing that to get into the way, in the way. So it's a way where the best of students and what they have to offer is brought out. And if it's not the best, they can, um, they can admit it and they can say, but I want to get better. Um, I want to work on that. Um, I'll tell you, I'll give you a, one last example here, um, and then we can get into um, some of the specifics. I teach a, um, 
I can teach from broadcast journalism to communications, but also to multimedia and digital online publication. And one of the things that I found um, in these classes that are more tech-driven or in classes where there are different cultures, um, some individuals are used to, in these, in both of these um, instances and situations, they're used to kind of doing their own thing. Like right now, we know with digital publication, um, there are more younger um, individuals, college students, who really are self-motivated and independent. What professors have a problem with is collaboration. Uh, a lot of the students, they don't want to collaborate. And that's in any class where they don't want to do group exercises because everyone makes the same grade. And if one person is not pulling their weight, <laughs> they will right. tell you and they they can't, they hate it. But I thought to myself, well... Yeah. Um, you're going to have to know how to do this because if you want to work in a science lab, if you want to work in a medical lab, if you want to learn work in a newsroom, you're going to have to learn how to get along with each other. So how are we going to do that? So one of the ways that I do it is um, my students will tell you that I'm fair, um, but I'm very disciplined and um, professional. And so every now and then I have to we have to have fun. So I put made up this game called who wants to be, who wants to make an A? Who wants to make an A? It's like, it's um like who wants to be a millionaire, right? right? So we have this, I have game music, theme music playing, and everyone studies the same study guide and everyone in the entire classroom of 35 students, they're going to make the same exact grade. So what does that mean? 35 students are going to have to study for each other because what happens, I bring them to the stage, they have to stand up there and get their question. And in front of everyone, we're going to know either you studied for the group or you did not study for the group. But either way, we're still going to encourage you because we all want to make an A. So what happens? We play the music, they have the question, and this, you could take the most serious students, the most tech-driven students, and you will see the human inside of them come out from behind. I always say there's a human <laughs> being behind every student. Um, there's a human being first and then the student who happens to be a student. Anyways, um, conclusion, end of story is they can phone a friend. So a lot of times they'll phone their dad and they're like, dad, I have this question. I only have 30 seconds, blah, 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 blah. And everyone starts to get in, right? You could do more together. So they start rooting them on. Yeah. Okay. Let's do the clickers. The eye clickers is four multiple choices. Uh, Let's see what the audience says. So every single student has a clicker and they click it and say, oh, 65% gets A and 25% chose B. And what do you choose? So we play the game just like that. So we kind of learn to empower each other. There are differences, but when we have the, we actively centralize ourselves on the common goal of making the best grade that we can make. Then no matter who you are, where you come from, what your technology aptitude is, uh, whatever the case may be, you are valued. You're going to pull together and together we're going to make this happen. I think that kind of cuts down on looking at our differences in a way that divides us and rather looking at our differences that brings us together. Well, let me ask 
because uh, this is going to be probably an obtuse question, so I apologize ahead of time. Okay. You you wrote the book, uh, Teaching Without Borders, and we've been talking about that. You earlier wrote a book, 250 Years and Still a Slave, Mm -hmm. and and I believe in that book you you talked about people feeling marginalized and enslaved uh, Mm -hmm. regardless of race, but, Mm -hmm. but race is a part of that. Right. What we've been talking about here for about 15 minutes, uh, you haven't mentioned race once. Mm-hmm. How did those two books join together? And how it, does this work to, um, to form inclusion mm-hmm. without the, the, the recognition of a racial divide? Is that too obtuse? No, it isn't. It isn't. And I, I, think, I think that's a great question because my first book, um, it also with the um, tagline, Breaking Free with Active Centralized Empowerment. So again, I'm going back to Active Centralized Empowerment. That is a praxis, a theory, and a critical pedagogy that I use for businesses as well because it collect, it teaches collaboration. It teaches how to, how to have individuality within a collective. Because it's really important. You know, we can do anything and everything on an island, but we don't live on an island. We have other people that are involved. And it's a new way of thinking and performing. So instead of seeing race, for instance, as something that divides us, um, because I have a black experience, and you or someone else will have a white experience. There will be a Hispanic Latinx experience, whatever the case may be. Instead of that being something that actually divides us, the fact that we're allowed to be who we are without apology, the fact that that's only a part of us brings us together because at the bottom, on the the, the most common denominator, for instance, if anyone here, let's just take for an example in this country, were to read any one of these books, they will see the common denominator is that we're American. That's number one. The common denominator is that we're human beings. That's number two. So it's the common denominator of that's on a, a more of a positive, proactive meaning we have these differences, but it's not the differences that separates us. Even though we have differences, I may have an experience, but my experience may be from being a military brat. My experience may be from being college educated. Before I ever get to the black, before I ever get to that, it depends on what's going on and what's being said. So what it does is a white person doesn't have to apologize and a black person doesn't have to apologize. A brown person doesn't have to apologize. This is who I am. This is how I think. This is my culture. And the best movements, positive movements, are the ones that are inclusive in ways that says, we know all of that. We understand all of that. Therefore, when we're moving forward, everybody's going to bring in what's special and what's amazing about their own lived experience to drive the momentum forward. Okay. Let me so, let me jump in okay. with a question though. Okay. Isn't there a, a a white privilege that comes with uh, the white experience that tilts the playing field a bit? 
I look at this a little differently. Um, so for instance, when you talk about white privilege, what I have found in being around um, other individuals, like for instance, my parents are both college educated. My entire family's college educated uh, for generations. Uh, my family <laughs> and from- I'm the first college graduate. In my okay, family. okay. So therefore, the, you're you're a white male. Mm-hmm. I'm a black female. I may have more privilege and may have experienced more privilege than you. Um, at a very young age, because my father was a um, retired colonel from the army. We were upper middle class and not saying because you're the first college educated means that you didn't. No, you know, we you were blue collar. We were, we okay. were blue collar. Right. So some things I may have been privileged with. Okay. Um, where I had a car at 16, I had a sweet, sweet 16 birth. I had everything, you know, um, and, but my parents worked hard everything that I have. And even though I had privilege to a certain degree, when other people would see the color of my skin, I would not have privilege. Okay. So there, 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 so it's, it's not as, um, it's not as, as easily divided as we think. Um, when I went to Ohio, for instance, and I went to a mining town, a closed down mining town, nothing but white people in the, in the, in the, in the town. But I, there was no white privilege whatsoever. They were poor. They were hurting. Um, they couldn't see a dentist. Um, they were in bad shape health-wise. So if, if individuals make a hasty generalization and say all white people have white privilege because they're white, um, it's because of my experience that that is not true. It's because of my research. That is not true. Now, the system, what I talk about is you know, the system, right? People can change. Human beings can change. It's just like saying that a lot of scholars say that white people are born racist and they truly believe that. And 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 that's their belief and that's their research. But it is not my belief, not, not my research and not my experience because I have been surrounded my entire life by white people who have absolutely not been racist. I've been surrounded by some black people who have, um, been, I will say, unfairly judgmental against other black people. So it makes it a little weird and a little difficult, but I think that in order for us to be fair to one another, I think that we have to judge each individual individually. And I think that we're better off looking actually at system, systems that we know are there that actually keep some people out. It's a system. So I say we dismantle systems to make sure that it's fair, that people are fair to, to some degree. And there's more protection because I think behind every system is a human being. If human beings are corrupt, the system is going to be corrupt. So I think we have to change both. Um, but I am one of those... Um, I've learned an outlier in the fact that I absolutely speak about the authenticity of being black versus, um, for instance, um, learning your DNA. So my DNA has been D from the, on my mother's side from Sierra Leone, which means that when Maya Angelou, the late great Dr. Maya Angelou, uh, when I met her at 12 years old through my aunt Barbara, who's an artist in North Carolina, and my uncle, Dr. Herman Urey, is the first black graduate um, 
student at Wake Forest University and the first one to obtain, um, to earn tenure at Wake Forest University in biology. When I look at all of that, and she tells me at 12 years old, oh, you remind me so much of myself. Oh, so much of myself. What I learned through active centralized empowerment is a few years before she passed, she found out she was Mindy just like me. And so that is an African experience. That is a black experience. And it's something that demarginalizes individuals to know that there's so much more to you other than the history of enslavement. And you have to go past that. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. So in your uh, ACE, in your Active Centralized Mm -hmm. Empowerment, Uh uh, what is the first thing that an educator would look at? Is it it skills? Is it lack of skills? Is it uh, untapped talent? Is it race? Uh, Is it a mixture of all those things? How How does one determine how to empower someone? It's all of those things. <laughs> and that's number one is all of those things. And, and let me also say, uh, Tom, let me also say that um, in my opinion, in this, in this country, let me just say in this country, um, before we leave this thought here, in my opinion, in this country, and I want to say this on the, um, on this day, uh, Martin Luther King's birthday, that one of the, um, the most disenfranchised, unprivileged I mean, um, uh, non-privileged um, uh, aggregate that we have are the poor. And the poor, if you couple it with other things such as gender or race or sexual orientation, yes, it can either enhance or exacerbate the situation. But I want to make that clear. So, But it is holistic and heuristic in its approach when it comes to active centralized empowerment, meaning that it is all of those things and more. And it also is a way that they can actually practice in the years that we have them in school before they actually go out and do harm. So if there's an individual that is homophobic, they can deal with their homophobia without ever trying to convert anyone. They can deal with their homophobia in a way that they can still be productive, proactive, um, positive people 
um, when it comes to differences, that you can actually be kind and respectful in a setting because you've practiced and practiced, even if you didn't have it at home, you practice and practice. So again, it's to bring out the best in every individual. And so when you're looking at um, multiple intelligences, when you're looking at intersectionality, all of that is brought into play um, to bring out the best. But you know, your question, that's a very, very good question. Let me give you an example of something like, here I'm a professor. I have Professor Dr. Collins's book, Active Centralized Empowerment. I see where she's telling me in every chapter what I could do to bring inclusion in every classroom right. with every assignment. Okay. But what if I just don't know? I just don't have it in me. I'm just not that type of person. Actually, I get a lot of that when it comes to um, STEM. Mm -hmm. I just want to know, can you save the horse? I want my student to be able to save the horse. I'm not really into the emotional. I'm not really into the psychological or the sociological. So how do you use it? Okay. How do you know what to do? Well, here's one of the biggest tricks, um, not tricks, I don't like that, strategies that you can use. Immediately in the first day of class, I give my students, I empower my students to have voice. I give them partial autonomy in my classroom. You can read more about that in the book, but right now I'll just talk about giving them voice. The way they get voice is they can look at my syllabus. They have it a week before class. I give them an introduction letter. I welcome them and I tell them exactly what I expect for them to do in my classroom. And I, they know exactly what they should expect from me. Now we're sharing power here. I'm telling you exactly who I am. I'm giving you my credentials and I'm telling you how I'm going to teach you what I'm going to teach you. You have two weeks. The entire class has two weeks to discuss every and anything in that syllabus to tell me what they like, what they don't like, what they want changed. That's giving them power of voice. Now, if I feel that mm, they make a great point, we do have a special holiday coming up. Maybe I'll change this or maybe I won't. But we're listening. We're talking to one another. And then at the end of it, they have to sign it just like a contract because I want to get them ready for graduation, no matter what classification they're in. If you get ready for the classification and I want you to be able to read a contract, know what it is before you sign, this is how I'm teaching you how to be professional, how to be ethical and how to be fair. Once you sign that, you understand that's where we're going. The second thing they do that has power and then I'll stop at this part. I allow them to tell me exactly who they are. And I do that in a bio. They write a one page bio with the key points that they want me to know on paper because I shred it after I read it. So it's never online, but they tell me exactly who they are, exactly what they want to work on, why they're in college, why they're in the classroom, whatever the case may be. So I've had students who say, I speak three languages. I have students who say, um, both my parents are lawyers. I have students who say I'm a survivor of sexual abuse. I have students who say I have um, body dysmorphia. I don't want to be out in public. Please help me um, be more outgoing in the classroom. They will speak to you if you care. If you show that you care, you have empathy, which we really need in this, and not only in our classes, we need in this country more empathy and understanding, not conversion but more empathy and understanding. And I've had students tell me, this is who I am, but this is what I work, want to work on. Can you help me? Um, I just want you to know I'm a fighter. I've been able to survive this. You know, I lost my mom. I lost my dad. Um, I'm a star athlete, whatever the case may be. And from that, then I know I can kind of get an idea. Okay, this is what I'm working with. Okay, this is how I can help. And this is what I can do. It, it, I understand that if if somebody tells you uh, what they want, 
or mm -hmm. what they want to work on. Uh -huh. uh, let, let's take another example. Um, I, I think you've talked about, uh, you know, pe white people are not necessarily born racist. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't believe in that, that theory. But there could be some subliminal, subconscious, uh, racist manifestations sure. that come out in someone. Sure. Uh, I know that you believe that that ACE can deal with those. How, mm -hmm. how do you deal with something that's not admitted to you and you can't see necessarily? Mm -hmm. Critical thinking. Critical okay. thinking, critical analysis is huge. And I cover that in the book as well. So how we deal with that, because while people are not born a certain way, I believe there can be conditioning. I believe in any, it's, 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 a, it's like a program that I used to, it's a long time ago, like in the 70s, where there were nothing but women on the island. They were the warriors and, you know, there was a ship of men that would, you know, um, <laughs> you know, they would have a shipwreck and the women would help them and feed them, but they were warriors, right. you know. And now if you grew up like that and you're around strong women, you would come up with the conditioning that women are strong. You would think twice if someone said they were weak. I think that type of conditioning is going on and has gone on and continues to go on in this country where they place one race above another, one gender above another. And so we have to take it upon ourselves to be better human beings and to give people the, um, the, the wherewithal and the critical thinking. So what happens is, for instance, an individual, a student one day um, said in one of my classes in the 20 years, I think Arthur Ashe got what he wanted, what, what he deserved, and he died from AIDS because he was obviously practicing something that wasn't right. Okay. So everyone knew who knew, knew he had not done his homework, had knew he did not research because we understand that Arthur Ashe uh, re, um, contracted HIV AIDS from a blood transfusion during the procedure. Um, and not that anybody should, deserves that, period. Let me make that Correct. clear. Correct. Um, so, but here's a student saying this in front of everyone. So what usually would happen in a typical classroom, oh, everyone would jump on this student. I mean, and you're going to get clobbered. We're coming after you like yeah. so hard. So in an active centralizing and environment, active centralized empowerment environment says he spoke his truth. Right. And when people speak their truth, you're t they're telling you what they know, and what they don't know. They're telling you the limited um, aspects to their knowledge base. And so critical thinking comes in. Really? Is that what you think? Does anybody have anything to say about that? And another student said, well, I don't I think he got it from a blood transfusion. I understood my mom and dad talked about it. Really? So can anybody look that up? You're you're here. A journalist. Shouldn't you do research? Because what would that mean then? If that's wrong, would you consider that a little prejudice, would you say? What word would you use? I'm just, I'm just wondering. And what you do is you ask it with honesty, right? You ask with honesty and say, what would you use? How would you characterize that? What you just said? How would you? You know, I understand. Let's, let's get to the bottom of it. And so a lot of the students would chime in and say, well, this and that and this and that. And actually, and then another student would come out and say, actually, what you said was homophobic. And I really don't appreciate that. 
And so it's said in a respectful way without, you know, um, cowering down. It said, I really don't appreciate that. You could be professional and say, I really don't appreciate that. And then the individual came back and said, well, I wasn't sure. I didn't know. So what did we learn from this? Okay. So there's one way that you can do that where you can absolutely address. Students have addressed me. One time I said something about another nation, um, with the kindness, you know, and goodness in my heart, I just didn't know. And I, I pronounced a name wrong or something like that, but they were so empowered that when I pronounced the name wrong, my student said, Dr. Collins, I think you're, that was a little disrespectful. And I said, well, I didn't know. Okay. Tell me how to pronounce it. I'm sorry. Tell me. So you, you, you learn to agree to disagree and totally disagree sometimes. We're going to disagree, but guess what? We still have this project to do. We still have this paper to write. So critical thinking is important. So I have a protocol, a problem conflict and resolution protocol. My protocol in my classroom is a student cannot come to me to help them answer and solve a problem until they have attempted three times. And in those three times, they have to tell me before, when they come to me, they have to say, this is what I did the first time. This is the solution and why it didn't work. This is what I did the second time. This is what I did the third time. And then I will help them through critical thinking saying, okay, this, what do you think went wrong? Because if they can figure it out themselves, right? I give them, I teach them how to fish rather than give them a fish. I want you to figure this out. So that when the Me Too campaign comes up and a male or female comes to you and says, I believe that this is happening. I'm being sexual harassed. I expect you to be transformational in your leadership. And I expect you to understand and, and try to talk with them about it. And then I expect you to take steps. I grade on leadership. I grade on everything that I think is important when it comes to changing um, the culture and the environment to be the most amenable to being optimal performance. Optimal performance by what we teach, optimal performance by how what students graduate and how they are trained that they can actually take on leadership role positions where there is diversity and it's expected to know how to deal with this. So I hope that answers your question a little bit. Oh, it, it, it does. Thank you. Uh, My pleasure. Dr. Collins, there are a couple other things I wanted to mm -hmm. talk with you about as I have you here. Uh, you're a, a fascinating person. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're a, you're a journalist, you're an educator, you're you're a, a documentarian, you're you're a broadcaster, um, you're you're a teacher. How do you describe yourself? You you do so many things, and, and on paper they look disparate, but they aren't. They're intertwined. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. First of all, and. Uh, you know, I think that uh, for for all, let me just say this. I'm just going to put that on the table. You know, it was um, at one point in time, you and I had uh, had a connection in uh, yeah, at right. Ohio University. I will tell you, leadership is really important. Um, good leaders, inclusive leaders, um, transformational leaders are really important. Um, and, um, you know, you're a fantastic leader while I was getting my master's and my PhD at Ohio University because you did not confine me in any way. Uh, Dr. Slater did not confine me in any way. And I think it's really important to be around people who um, encourage you. So how would I describe myself? I am a scholar for social impact. So um, I must say that I am a practicing um, Christian and the fact that um, I believe and I'm tolerant and I'm inclusive of all religions, 
um, of love. And, um, but the way that I was raised for my mother and father, uh, was to be number one, a good person. Uh, number two, God is watching. <laughs> well, God, Santa Claus, mommy and daddy. Uh, that's how right. I kind of mapped it out there. <laughs> you got uh, it. <laughs> and so, um, everything that I do, um, is to, um, I really, and being a military brat, you know, I moved every year for the first 14 years of my life and I thought it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, I was born in Oklahoma and two weeks later I was in Germany. Um, and so I learned <laughs> that's to a be, switch. Yeah. <laughs> but I learned to be a person of service um, my entire life. I went on hunger strike when I was like five because I saw the save the children or feed the ch- children promo. And I did. I said I wasn't going to eat anymore until we adopted a child. And <laughs> my parents loved it. And and I came home with, you know, I was a very innocent child, very well protected. Um, I have to say I was blessed with that where Every day I would come home with a new friend that I love so much. And I'd knock on the door of my own house and mommy would answer it and say, Janice, what are you doing? I said, this is my friend, Greg Peterson. I love him so much. Can he come in and have dinner? And um, I was really, you know, I my sisters and brothers, there were six brothers and sisters at the time um, when I was growing up. And um, I learned love at a very, very uh, young age. And I would say in all that I do, um, documentarian, as you said, all of these things, um, and motivational speaker, um, I'm a humanitarian first. I am a humanitarian. I am absolutely all about centered on the best of humanity, period. I do that in my classes. I do that in my teaching. I do that in the topics that I cover and podcast. Um, I'm right now, I am absolutely, I just did an audio book for an absolutely wonderful person by the name of Sabiba Shakia. Um, and she wrote the book, uh, Bridging the Impossibles, where she actually escaped Sudan and built the first high school in refugee, refugee camps, the first one. And um, I, w- I have had the honor and the privilege and the blessing to be able to do her audio book for her um, because her, her mission, her purpose is, is incredible. When I was a young child, about eight, um, I told my parents that I believe that God had a calling on my life to help people. And I'm going to do that. And I, I told them, I just, you know, I don't want to be hurt and I don't want anybody to hurt me, but I have the courage to do it. And I was such an emotional child. They didn't really know what to do with me, but (laughs) a lot of the times, but I had the best family, um, the best mom and dad. And so I, I seek in my classrooms to bring that love and encouragement, not only in my classrooms, wherever I work, around the world, whether it's the refugee camps in Nigeria or working uh, with individuals from Bosnia or here in Chicago or anyone, I absolutely believe in healing and repair and love and support. I absolutely do. That will be my legacy. I want to tie that into one last quick okay. thing, and and sure. that's the state of journalism. Uh, ah, you yeah. you've worked in commercial journalism. Yes. Uh, you now, uh, I guess, I would characterize you as a as a freelancer. Uh-huh. Uh, but 
journalism seems to have missed the mark as far as covering race, covering religion, covering mm -hmm. culture, mm -hmm. uh, and covering what you talk about in inclusivity. Yeah. I, I have you written off journalism. I you know NPR is having problems <laughs> with race. Every place is having problems with sure. race. I, you know, not sure. many news entities anymore uh, have somebody covering religion uh, yeah. as as part of our our culture. Yet y you've turned and you have an award winning website called HearMyVoiceOnline.com. Uh, if you if you really want to see some uh, diversity, go to go to that <laughs> site. It's it's like you've opened a place where people can talk, knowing that they can't talk through normal means. Yes, yes, and it's the wonderful individuals, my students. That student run and student produced, and we have a. At the time, I had a research. I mean, a um, registered student organization um, that we would bring in the community when we needed to heal. Um, individuals that we've never met before, we come together and we heard their voice. And uh, I thank you for that. Um, I also want to say that because of active centralized empowerment, and I think there's a different way of teaching um, outside of the, the traditional and probably the hundred years that the journalism department at the University of Illinois has been open. I have won um, uh, national and international awards in all four areas of assessment using active centralized empowerment. That's teaching, creative endeavor, research, and service. And I think what's important about that is that you cannot be afraid to be uh, to walk the road less traveled. Um, if you if you truly believe in what you're doing, um, and I will say because of that, and I was I teach I was teaching journalism in multimedia and digital publication. Um, I have not given up on journalists um, or journalism. I just believe that journalists have lost their way. Um, I have never, um, there are things that I do once a journalist, always a journalist. I have my first job <laughs> right. in 1986, right? It never changes. <laughs> never changes. It's in your never blood, does. no matter how old you get or That's how many right. other jobs you have. <laughs> That's right. And so because of that, I've, um, I've done things like never registered for a particular political party. Um, I forced myself to be as objective as possible, as an impartial. I believe in journalism um, that seeks the truth and reports it. I believe in ethical journalism. That's not what we're seeing. It's a sad day when I tell my students, don't look at certain programs, but if you do, please use your, be media literate and use your critical thinking. I actually had a class, we actually did um, research on the backgrounds of the individuals that pre presented themselves as journalists. And what we found out is, um, at the time now, this was probably, um, this is probably about 13 years ago, we found out the individuals that were showing up on the airwaves were not journalists at all. They just had the pseudo event of a journalist in a journalism platform, such as the blue and the red, that we know those colors mean credibility. Um, they had the image portrayals of being a journalist, but they actually were not political. I mean, they actually were not journalists. I think journalists have done a disservice to this democracy and to this country. We're known as the fourth estate, which means that we have to protect journalists in the freedom of the press. If we, but we, we have to protect our credibility. We have to stop 
um, being opinionated personally and just report the facts. A lot of people, a lot of the audience, our constituency, that's what they want. Don't tell me how to think. Just give me the facts. Give me that fact, that fact, make it balanced, and then let me make my own decision. I'm so sick of analysis. I just oh. want, I just want facts. <laughs> There's I like just 20 want of them. Facts. Just just give me 10 facts and shut up. (laughs) And then, and then the experts and I I love, so I have, see, so what I do is I follow certain journalists, not necessarily a program because they have, I like their reporting. Um, I believe they're trying to be fair and balanced and they want to report the truth. I believe they want to minimize harm. You know, you don't report something that's not really pertinent to the story. Um, and, you know, there are, there are individuals, individual journalists that I follow that I really like the work that they do. Um, we got in trouble, journalism got in trouble when we started using social media in very haphazard ways. Um, social media should not, you know, I'm not even sure if journalists actually look for story leads um, outside of Instagram or Twitter or yeah. Facebook. And I think citizen journalists are amazing. I think they do an amazing job. But citizen journalists are not protected like professional journalists. We have a standard that we have to adhere to that is far higher and should be. Um, and we should have, they should have higher expectations of us. And if we do not do a better job at um, creating platforms and news programs that actually just give us the news and we get back our credibility. Not only will we be hurting when it comes to journalism, we will not know the truth. None of us will, which will be civil unrest, which we're having now. Um, Because if, you know, with that, we do help as a fourth estate to uphold democracy. That is what we do. That is our job. If we don't do it well, then we shouldn't call ourselves self a journalist. I really think there needs to be delineation between um, programs that are allowed to call themselves journalism programs versus those that are infotainment. I call them infotainment. And, you know, there's room for everyone, um, but I wouldn't really know where to work. Like one of the reasons why I freelance and I'm independent at this time, I really am not sure. I've had offers. I'm just not really sure. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, will I have to compromise myself or, well, I won't do that, but will you ask me to compromise myself? Yeah. And you look at, at, at all outlets and you see a degree of that, uh, oh, absolutely. Wh- whether it's print or broadcast, but especially in broadcast. Absolutely. And I think that even with what's happening um, at certain, on certain networks and certain organizations, when they're losing um, that uh, their diversity is is is, tr- is problematic because we have this illusion that one person. I believe I speak from what I know and my and what I experience and what I've been educated in. Uh, I don't. I stay in my lane. If I because I love collaboration. If I don't know, I'll find somebody else who does know. And what do you think? What's happening is the, that diversity is leaving, and so there are individuals who have no experience in certain areas, that they're now the expert and they're the spokesperson. And they're, I'm like, "Mm, I'm not really sure whether that's going to work. 
And if you're losing a lot of people, such as one of the network state um, organizations that I love so much for so many years. Oh, NPR is losing people all over the place. Okay, so great. You said it. Okay, NPR. (laughs) (laughs) They are. Yeah, I think it's a travesty. I really do. I think that this is one of the times that I don't like the saying, follow the money. And I'm not saying that's what they're doing, but I'm because people are hurting. Organizations are hurting. Journalism organizations are hurting um, for currency. Um, I, I, I think that we have to be careful not to sell out and that um, we have to be careful that um, from the many years ago, when I, when I grew to love journalism at a very young age, it's because of the individuals that I saw, the individuals that I heard the individuals that I read that I didn't feel um, were mean-spirited, divisive. Um, I felt it was just information that they they were trusted. And so other than my mother, my mother used to have us read the newspaper, watch the news every single day. And then when she got home, um, if she was working at the time or she was a stay-at-home mom, depending, we had six kids. She only, she didn't expect any, and she had six, but, and two sets of twins, but wow. um, she would have us uh, give her a summary. What happened in the news today? And we had to give a report, an oral report. So I was one of those where, yeah, the echo and everything was great in the bathroom. So I'd go in the bathroom and read the newspaper, <laughs> and I just knew I was going to be an anchor. And actually, I was an anchor at PBS. That was my first, my first, I know my you first were. position. <laughs> so uh, I think we have to get back to that. Next time we talk, I think we'll spend the whole time <laughs> talking about journalism. But this has been uh, such a great conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Collins, for talking about your, your new book and your active centralized empowerment. Uh, oh, good you. luck with, you know, preaching that message across the country and across the world. I know you are. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, so anybody can find me online and get the book uh, from Cognella Publishing for that. And um, actually my 250 years and still a slave, Jane Elliott read it, loved it, quotes from it, has been on my podcast because of it. And uh, I think it will bring all the races together, all Americans together and the global citizens together. And I want to thank you so, so very much for having me on your amazing show. I've been able to listen to some of the shows uh, on Spectrum that you've already done and quite impressive. And uh, uh, you're a great human being and it has absolutely been a pleasure and an honor to be here with you today. Thank you. We appreciate it. And we'll talk again. Okay. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Janice Marie Collins about her educational practice of active centralized empowerment. You can follow Dr. Collins on Instagram at drjaic, where she will soon announce how to register to her next online workshop in March. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, 
please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you.